another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I am doing great, Jody. I'm very excited today because we get to talk to somebody that I wanted to talk to for a little while here, and we have Cameron, better known as Venus Theory, with us today. So welcome to the show, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for people that are perhaps not that knowledgeable of what it is that you do and who you are, maybe you can give us a little bit of a background of who is Venus Theory and why should we all care? <laughs> sure. Uh, born in the late 1900s on a rainy day as Olympus split open and the gods shone down on my mustache. Yeah, basically Fantastic. I'm a musician, sound designer, uh, internet clown, and I don't know, person just sort of making things up as I go. Basically I make sample packs and presets and things like that for a lot of different companies. I've been doing that for a long time. I was in bands, you know, throughout my late teens, early 20s, did all the touring and all that sort of stuff, and then got tired of that. So have more or less been working in a lot of roles kind of behind the scenes in a lot of different aspects, whether it's like writing music for like apps or games or like little indie short film things or whatever, or, you know, making the sample packs that come in your DAW or the demo track that ships with your DAW or the presets on your hardware or whatever, sort of a jack of not really all trades, but most of them. <laughs> so kind of like a jote, but not exactly. I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you, you mentioned the band there in, in uh, your teen years. What got you into music initially? Was there a musical family or was it just like everybody's boyhood dream wanting to be a rock star type of thing? <laughs> yeah, my dad was a musician back in, I guess that would have been the 80s. You know, he was in a band and they played around and whatever. Uh, my great grandpa Lyle Kiefer was a musician back in the 50s and 60s. He actually cut some records down in like Nashville and stuff. I think they were called the Kiefer Brothers Band, but then sometimes it was under just Lyle Kiefer. And then, I don't know, the details are murky because like it's so like John long John Mellencamp. Like, yeah, like the record labels are all gone now. So I, I haven't found any real history on it, which I've been trying to find for years. But that was always super cool. And I remember growing up, my dad has one of his guitars actually, oh, cool. which is now mine. It's actually sitting right over there behind me. So my dad found that guitar after my great grandpa passed away at some point. And this was like long before I was born. So he had that. And I remember like my dad would play that. I always thought that was cool. And we had a picture of my great grandpa and a big framed thing of his records he made. And I always just thought that was like super cool that like, oh, grandpa made a record. Like right. that's <laughs> sick. Were so they I actually have platinum? those records now too. Are they painted platinum? <laughs> uh, one of them, all the like black stuff on the vinyl has worn off and it was like a master pressing. So that one's technically platinum looking, <laughs> mostly just due to like deteriorating, but they're all like in semi-okay condition. You can still listen to them. One of them has actually never been heard because it's a master pressing and was never, I guess, released. So at some point I really want to open that up and put it on my record player and like maybe do a video about that just because I found the building that he recorded in, it's actually in Nashville, uh, which I'm right by. And it's abandoned now, so like abandoned buildings are super cool. So I thought it'd be cool to go there, see if I could dig up some history on some things and listen to this song that hasn't been heard in like 70 years. But that was just always the big thing in the back of my mind. I thought it was so cool that my great grandpa did that. And you know, my dad was in a band that was super cool and was always just something I was interested in. And I was always one of the kids like 
banging on pots and pans or I would find a harmonica and make my parents want to kill me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And apparently when I was a little kid, my parents, well, my mom came from a Catholic family, so we went to church and apparently I would just like scream my lungs out when they would start singing and I was like three. So I, I had no idea what the words were, but I would just like yell whenever people were singing. So I don't know, I've always just been very into music, I guess. Nice. And it was so, just, you know, always what I wanted to do. And right. I'm super hard-headed. So it was just like, that's the thing I like and that's what I'm doing. Maybe you <laughs> nice. should get that building and then repurpose it to another recording studio. Yeah, I have no idea who owns it or what the deal with it is. Public or, records, man. Public records. Yeah, I was going to try and call like the Nashville, I don't know. Building, building people. Yeah, and just try and find out like who owns this or what's the history or who is the last owner Sure. Maybe because I think it was, it was a recording studio multiple times. Like it was the one my grandpa recorded in. Someone else bought it. It was under some new name. So on, so on. So whoever owned it last did run a recording studio there. And I'm wondering if someone or someone's family has like the master tapes somewhere, or just you know even just a box of the documents of like bands that recorded there. I would just sure. be so interested, but. You know, who knows? Because it's just a dumpy building <laughs> off like a side street in Nashville. So no idea. Yeah. You mentioned guitar there. What was your first instrument? Guitar. I, I really wanted to be a drummer, but my parents were not masochists. So they didn't <laughs> We buy are their two peas in a set. pod. That was the yeah. same thing. I wanted to be a drummer. Nope, you're going to get a guitar instead. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, was, I got a CD from my aunt of Godsmack. Ooh, back when wow. Godsmack was cool. And uh-huh. one, it was uncensored. I don't think she knew that. So my mom was like, oh, you can't have that. But I thought it was fucking awesome. Of course. Right? So, you know, big, heavy drums and da-da-da. And I was like, I want to do that. That's cool. You know, that's heavy and da-da-da-da-da. So I was like, mom, I want a drum set. And she was like, no fucking way. Not in a million years. <laughs> so, yeah, I got a guitar because dad played guitar. And he was like, hey, we'll buy a guitar. I could show you some things, da-da-da-da-da. So went and bought a guitar and... I do remember my dad showing me how to play bad to the bone, just like the little intro riff to it. Nice, and I remember just nice. playing that over and over and over and over and over. And I think it was like a day or two later, I remember coming back to my dad and saying, you were playing it wrong. <laughs> he, he had like, you know, I was playing it over and over and over. And then my dad had the George Thorogood CD. So I was listening to that, playing along with it, trying to do that. And then I noticed that like my dad had just like one of the notes or like the rhythm or something wrong. And I was like, nope, dad, it's this, da 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 you know. And he's like, and all right, ever, fine, ever you go and then, teach just, me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you yeah, mentioned dad your dad, me you mentioned and, your grandpa, What or your great-grandpa. What happened to grandpa? Did he not play? I know my grandpa knows how to play a little bit of guitar, but I don't think he ever did anything with it. He was a plumber. So he so, broke the lineage, so to speak, for a moment. I guess, yeah. It kind of skipped a generation and then went down to me. So I just tell my dad I'm like the new and improved model. There you go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then with the touring and all that, those, I'm guessing, rock bands, and you were playing guitar yeah. in those bands? Yeah. What made you do the switch? What Because the way I think of you now, and possibly unfairly, I don't know, but you do predominantly instrumental music, sort of very cinematic, is what it sounds like to me, very sort of soundscapey, that type of thing. So... What was it that made that shift for you where that started becoming interesting? And because you play piano now as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I play a ton of stuff. Early on, yeah, I played guitar. And then after, 
I don't know, however many years of playing guitar, five or six. I lived in the super, super, super tiny farm town of like 1,200 people. But, you know, only like four of them actually lived in the town. The rest were just farmers in the area where it was a town. <laughs> town so it's not like this was necessarily this metropolis of musicians and arts. So I played with a couple people, but eventually it became this thing of like, I want to make music. So I had to learn other instruments to, you know, do that. But obviously I can't play this all at the same time. So I had to learn how to record stuff. So I had audacity and things like that. So I wanted to be in bands, I wanted to record, I wanted to make music, had to learn all this. And there was always this thing of like technology enabling me to do these things. So I was fascinated with just like what you could do with a computer. Cause growing up, you know, my dad introduced me to friends of his who were in bands or had like home studios. And in my mind, that was just how music was made. You had a band, you had a studio, you had a console, you had like a tape deck or whatever, you had Pro Tools. And it was so cool once I really experimented with that stuff in the early days of the internet when like LimeWire was cool and whatever, you know, just pirating a copy of FL or whatever and suddenly being able to make a record at home was just right. mind blowing. But I was very adamant that like electronic music was not real music, man. You know, <laughs> music is in a studio, man, with tape, man. Cause that's, you know, that's what I grew up on. And then right. as I got older, you know, I, I, played in bands my dad was in. I played with a bunch of other bands and that was what we did. You know, if you wanted to make music, you went to the studio, you recorded stuff. Eventually, as I got older, you know, went to college and whatever, I worked in some studios and things like that. And that was the whole process. But at the time, there were bands like Animals as Leaders and Periphery and stuff, you know, I was super into that. And they started experimenting with these more electronic elements and it was really interesting. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to do that. You know, I want to introduce okay. some of yeah. this stuff into so this. So now you were wanting to do not real music. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to combine these elements like they were doing because, like, that's so cool. And just having been so obsessed with the technology side of it, I was like, man, I feel like I could just do so much more if I understood that. Mm -hmm. right. So I went to this music college. It was a disaster. I only went for a year, but I had a class on MIDI. I remember asking the teacher just a ton of questions about synths and what do I do and how do I do this and learning about automation and MIDI and effects and all this crazy stuff you could do in the DAW was just, man, that's awesome. So I dabbled a little bit making like little loops and ideas and like video game type themes. But throughout all of this, you know, I love rock music, heavy music, things like that. But I've always been super interested in very like emotive music and especially film and game music. You know, I loved watching movies, loved playing video games, and I loved that the music drove the story or informed you of something. You know, it was right. always this back of my mind obsession that music is feeling more so than like melody. And it's feeling that's derived a lot of the times from not really the instrumentation so much as just the texture of things. I remember when I was younger, my dad's friend he worked with brought me a CD of Buckethead, uh, the album <laughs> Coma. And up to that point, you know, I listened to Godsmack, Alice in Chains, all that kind of stuff. And Colma was so different, like such a departure from that world. It was this very light album, heavily acoustic, very clean guitars, lots of melody, but like sampled drums and loops and you know, weird instrumental performances. And I loved that idea that it made me feel something. You know, up to that point, my relationship with music was like, loud stuff, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the driving force, I think, all along. And then once I really started to 
look at music in a different way with the technology aspect of it. It was like suddenly I could take a guitar and time stretch it by like a factor of 10,000 with, you know, Paul stretch or something. And suddenly it was just this amorphous wash of what Digital was voice. a guitar at some point. <laughs> yeah. So I, it just kind of kept being this obsession with that. And as I played in bands, you know, we did, I like I did the whole thing. I was in bands that went on tours. I was in bands that signed on labels. I was in bands that played the festivals, you know. I just hated it. I, I hate live music. I cannot stand it. And I was so sick of being broke all the time, you know, eating Hot Pockets in a van. And just this feeling of like, every night is, you know, sing and dance, monkey. <laughs> right. It's exhausting. Yeah. So I just quit and got out of that. I went and got a real job for a while. Oh, you that put that in me. air quotes. Hold on. Describe what this real job is. Uh, I worked with a web design company doing a lot of customer support and web design stuff. I worked as a freelance web designer and I did a lot of video production work stuff and things like that. So, okay. so it's not exactly okay. music related. So it's in that regard, it is a music tangential. It was yes. a, it was a company that it's like Squarespace, but for musicians basically. Oh. So it was cool, but it was annoying. Cause it's like, you know, teaching a 65 year old guy trying to get his acoustic band cover gigs, how to use, CSS and HTML is the stuff of my <laughs> <Yeah>. nightmares. <laughs> That's you know, the stuff it's, it's like trying to explain hell. to my grandpa how to sync IMAP email on his iPhone. Like, <laughs> right, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> so this sort of like exploration of working with software in the DAW led you down to sort of sound design? Was that just from, how did that start, that sort of? Kind of throughout all that, you know, I, I was in bands, I quit doing that. I started really focusing on the DAW side and like experimental music and electronic music and especially the more cinematic end of all that stuff. So yeah, you know, I started experimenting with that, but this was, you know, the old days, like 10 years ago or whatever, when if I needed a sample pack of cinematic drums or something, right? Sample packs were like $40 a piece. So if you need five sample packs a week, that's really expensive when you're a broke-ass college student musician person. Right. At the time, I started looking up, you know, YouTube and whatever, and I found channels like Seamless R or Sadowick Production or, you know, Ghost Hack or channels like that where they were showing you like, oh, if you have Serum, you can just do this, this, and this, and it makes a kick drum. Mm. So. Okay. So you got well, serum I, and started working that? My first synth was FM8, which was a terrible choice. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, FM8, uh, like <laughs> FM synthesis alone is really complicated, but FM8 is like... Having a PhD to get there. Yeah, like FM8 is just a whole other level of stupid. Even today, like if I had to use FM8, I still have to sit there and like really think things through of like what I'm doing. So would you so, rather yeah. they drop FM8 and kept absinthe or... Is it neither? Oh, man, for you? I, I would love a sequel to Absinthe, which never really happened. Uh, but the guy that designed it actually does plasmonic or rhizomatic software, I think is the name. And he has the synth called plasmonic, which is sort of like a spiritual successor. So, oh, nice. yeah, like it's weird that Massive got a sequel, but FM8 never did. And right. Absinthe and some of the other catalog of that era just gone. is gone now. Yeah, I was like watching those YouTube channels and it really started dawning on me that just like, oh, I don't have to buy a kick drum. I can just make one. And right. then it sort of all came full circle with just this obsession with sounds. I can make a kick drum out of banging on the radiator in my apartment. If I need like a high pitch noise, I could just record the microwave. 
with my cell phone. Right. So that was really where things started coming together. And especially as I got more into the processing side of things with just all the different stuff that was available in DAWs, you know, these huge reverbs that go on for days, the insane levels of distortion you can apply to digital audio, or even just ideas like clipping Mm -hmm. things. Like that was, it was funny because, yeah, there I was in, you know, production school and they're always like, you know, never clip and da, 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 da. And here I was like, all right, add 60 dB of gain and run it through a digital delay pedal. What happens? I don't know, but it sounds kind of cool. So (laughs) the sound design kind of came out of- recording it at 60 dB plus or- Yeah, I mean, I would just like take a, you know, a, a booster pedal or something and just slam it as hard as I could just- why not? And sometimes it was garbage, but sometimes it was really neat. And it just kind of became this thing born out of necessity that just became like a passion project of like, I wonder if I like flush my toilet and add a bunch of bass to it. What does that sound like when I slow it down? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the most, or not most, but more fascinating aspects of the technology that we have today, that I think it can be both really liberating and because all of these experiments that we can do and see where we end up with something. But at the same time, I think it's very easy to become frustrated with it as well because of just option paralysis. It's like, oh, for sure. There's so much stuff that the possibilities are endless, like you say, right? Yet we keep buying soft synths or whatever because of the preset pack as opposed (laughs) to doing our own, you know? I don't know. It's a really, really inspiring thing for me, I think, when it comes to that. I'm not nearly as versed in in synthesis as I would like to be. I'm on a trip right now where I'm really all about minimalism in my gear and all this kind of stuff just to try to avoid some of the option paralysis when it's like I, I find myself looking for the perfect patch for half hour when you could have made it in a minute. I feel like that's the modern producer, though, is like half of our time is spent going through a kick drum folder with hitting the down <laughs> right? going doom, 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 doom. And then you hear one that's like slightly doomier, and you're like, that's it. That's the right. faithful. But it's What's funny because, yeah, it, like knowing that and knowing where I'm at now, especially through YouTube and like, you know, working with all these companies and like, my P.O. box is just this never-ending pile of boxes of, like, stuff people send me. You know, companies send me a module or a pedal or a synth or whatever. And, like, plugins, I have licenses for, like, every plugin in existence at this point. Yeah. And it's super funny because even having all this, it all comes back to that where it's like, I still use the same five things I've been using for years. You yeah. know, when I, when I really open a session to get something done... I don't use 26,000 things. I use the same five sample packs I like, the same three pedals I've always liked. And it's funny because, yeah, exactly like you said, as much as this offers us, it's also super detrimental because it makes you feel like you just need to understand and utilize all of it when at the end of the day, a song is like drums and bass and pads and vocals and stuff. Right. Didn't you we know, just like do an episode on that? <laughs> yeah, we actually talked about about this like last week where one of the points that we brought up is like when you're in a session, when you're doing stuff, use gear that you know inside and out and utilize those fully instead of just trying to, oh, here's another 1176 emulation. I better get that one too, you know? Yeah, it's funny because sometimes when I do live streams of like doing a track from scratch or just working on one of my own songs, I every once in a while I'll get comments of like, dude, why are you using presets, man? I thought you were a sound designer. Like, Bro, you're using you're <laughs> I'm using, using my loops. own presets, damn it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like one, yes, I'm using presets, but 
nine times out of 10, it's like my presets. Right. right. And also like, why would I do sound design in a session? Right. That's that just, shit in takes my mind, time. it's like totally separate. Like yeah. sometimes it's necessary, you know, like I have an idea, so I'll just like do it really quick. But other times, yeah, it's just like, why would I waste time sitting here doodling around with like beep, beep, beep? Ah, that's not it. Beep, beep, beep. Nah, that's not it either. <laughs> right. Like that's a huge waste of time. I want to make music. Right. If I yeah. wanted to do sound design, I'll do that. Well, right. Understood. So I have to bring this up before I forget. And this, I'm jumping. I'm jumping way ahead <laughs> in your life and in subject matter here as well. I recently saw you go cave diving <laughs> to, to, to capture IRs. That, watching that made me so freaking anxious just watching it. Can you tell us what, what that experience was like and what the hell is wrong with you, Cameron? Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, the cave idea was... It's just this thing that came to mind because Ben Jordan and I, we've been meaning to collaborate for forever. And, you know, we love weird ideas like that. And we had a sponsor approach us about something where we had this idea of going to like some abandoned buildings to basically do the same thing, capture some IRs. But it didn't end up working out. And Ben and I just got so obsessed with this idea of like cave diving because this just sounds like one, super fun. Two, super interesting. Three, it on paper, it feels like YouTube gold of just <laughs> doing something extremely stupid. But like, I mean, you and know, try what, not to die. What other it, sound like, yeah. design YouTube video does that? You know, a lot right. of a lot of music tube is like it's a dude with facial hair and a top down view of like a pedal or something. Right. <laughs> so we we, you know, Ben and I have really been trying to push the envelope a bit of what music tube can be and what it can be about. So we were like, okay, what is just the most extreme way we could capture IRs? So it was big abandoned buildings, you know, oil tanks, things like that. And then it was mm. just like, oh, dude, what if it was a cave? So we did a ton of research and we ended up just canceling the sponsor for the whole shebang because it was just like, we've really wanted to do this right. Right. And then... Yeah, we had this massive trip planned. We had to whittle it down a little bit just because we had to finance it ourselves. But super, super fun. And it was one of those things of like, this is really dangerous and really dumb, but when are you going to get an opportunity to do something like this again, you know? Yeah. And then, too, it was just like we couldn't think about anything else. You know, we, we had other videos, of course, that we plan in advance, but it was just like once this idea popped in our heads, it was just like, like we have to do this now. If I yeah. don't do this, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's a really, really cool idea. And but like I said, for me, I'm, I'm sort of somewhat claustrophobic. So just watching that, it's like, oh, my God, I, I don't know how anybody does that. But um, <laughs> it was it was a lot. Yeah, it was yeah. not not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what else you said? Talk about going to extremes. So, so now somebody else has to top that and they have to go down to the... You've just given me an idea. ...to do something right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was unfortunate that the YouTube algorithm just like absolutely buried those videos, but it was really, really fun. And of course, Ben and I have like a ton of other ideas for other stuff like that, but we have to figure out how to make it work. For me, it was like, I really want to turn this into like a short film. 
Mm, and how yeah. would I how would I make a video on this that's not just I have a microphone clap 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 <laughs> let's put <laughs> a piano through it I, I thought it was great I thought like I said it certainly was interesting and it certainly made me feel something one was inspired I thought that was absolutely amazing and the other one was just absolute fear and that, that was oh. the whole thing of like when I was editing the video I was really just like okay I really want this to be just terrifying so it's like how do I and then we were like, okay, let's bring GoPros and, you know, the lighting is going to be weird. But it was also sort of like playing with the edit was really fun after the fact, too, because it was easy to make things just so disorienting. Mm. You know, just by like zooming in on the shot a little bit, it just like felt that much more intense. So it was a lot of fun and it was a really interesting project. Unfortunately, it didn't blow up the way we hoped it would, but it was really, really cool. And it's something we definitely want to do again at some point. Like Maybe cool. not like the cave thing, but, right. you know, something along those lines of some kind of just big, stupid idea like that. Because <laughs> it was just super cool. <laughs> Talking about breaking the mold, that, that was really, really cool. And speaking of big, stupid ideas, let's go with a word <laughs> from our sponsor right now. And we're back and we're continuing speaking with Cameron, who is also known as Venus Theory. What's next, Chris? Well, another thing that you have done, Cameron, is with some of your videos, besides the great content on sound design and programming patches and everything, this is every once in a while you do this thing where you actually talk about some of these subjects like mental health and stuff. Right. That we've touched on a little bit as well, but I think it's really, really cool that people are actually talking about this more, certainly than they used to. I don't think really people want to hear it, uh, <laughs> at least not when we've done it anyway. But I do think it's interesting, and you've sort of talked about things that you might have wrestled with in your career, and what made you wanting to do that? Was it just a, a willingness to share that, look, we all go through this kind of stuff, and you're not you know, any less than because you are type of thing, or, or what led you to, to do that? Yeah, I think it was sort of a combination of things of like, you know, the, the philosophy and psychology is something I've always been super interested in. You know, I've always been into those like big questions and just thinking about them and like making my brain hurt. So kind of the starting ethos of my channel was just, I want to make the videos I wish I had. And for a while it was like, I was making super hyper specific, really advanced sound design videos of just, I wish someone told me how this worked. And then it kind of branched out to, you know, doing other plugins and other ideas and like more basic subjects or just more interesting approaches to sound. And then you know, as the channel grew bigger, it was reviews or demos, but kind of through the lens of someone who does these things professionally and whatnot. And eventually it just kind of became this thing of like, if I have to talk about another analog monosynth or another reverb <laughs> pedal, I'm going to kill somebody. Because right. <laughs> it's like, you know, conceited as it is, it just got to this point of like, I've done everything I've wanted to do. And then like a hundred more things. Because I never expected to like do anything, especially through YouTube. It was just like... I'd made an EP and then I was done with that. So I was like, oh, I'll just make some YouTube videos about just like some things I learned during that process. And, How long you had yeah, your channel? I think about five years now. And I've only really been like seriously doing YouTube for like the last two. And that was okay. when just this like exponential growth really started happening. And when you so, say serious, what does that mean? Doing it to where it's like at least a part-time endeavor. I spend a good chunk of my week focusing on stuff for my YouTube channel. It used to just be like, I'd film a video on a Saturday in an hour and that's that. Now there's 
I mean, any more like a video takes at least a solid five to seven days. There's a lot of writing. There's a ton of research. There's a ton of pre-production planning. There's storyboarding. There's editing, color grading, planning the shots and the flow of information and all this stuff. So, Damn, you're reminding yeah, me of I just going got, to like, film school. <laughs> right. And, and that was kind of the thing is like I've always been super into, like I said, filmmaking and video games and music and stuff. So it's just this sort of combined interest. And it got to this point of I wanted to make a sample pack. So I made a sample pack. I want a sample pack released with a sample label. Okay, I did that. Okay, craziest goal possible. I want to get a sample pack out on Splice. Did that. Okay, I want to get my music featured on this YouTube channel. Done. Okay, I want to do this. Done. And, it, you know, I want to get, I want to convince a company to send me a free product. Done. You know, so it just right. kind of grew to this point where I just didn't know what else to do. And I feel like the meta of YouTube got to this point of there are just so many channels doing plug-in videos and free plug-in videos. And there are so many channels doing hardware stuff, guys or whoever want to talk about this thing they bought or review the new Roland whatever, right? And out of those channels, there's so, there's like just that select few that are so good at it that I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, like you, you watch like a Ricky Tina's video and you're just like, God damn, like that dude is nailing it. Or, you know, Ben Jordan is another great example of a channel I watched and I'm just like, well, shit. You know, That's, what do yeah. I do? Sort of how we thought and, about this Loop podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's like Loopop. You know, Loopop does the video manual. It kind of became liberating in that like, okay, so if Ben's doing this and Ricky Tinez does this and Loopop does this and Bo Beats does this and Sadowick is doing this, Seamless is doing this, Slink is doing this, then what do I want to do? What am I right. contributing? Then it got more into like, okay, I want to push the filmmaking aspect a bit more because I'm tired of just like, Camera staring at the screen, da 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 da, click click click, da 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 da, click click click, like and subscribe. Like it's just boring, and mm -hmm. it's not an interesting format. You know, as someone who's always been into like the psychology and whatever, I've always really been into writing, and thought like, okay, what if I spent time writing these videos out and spent time focusing on adding nice looking footage and color grading things, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew to where like, okay, when I do a gear review. I want a gear review that has like a really good looking intro of the gear. And I want to have like really funny jokes and I want to have things like really polished and so on. Eventually, like I said, got bored of doing all this stuff. I had done it and everyone else was doing it. And so many of them were doing it better than I was. It, it just felt pointless to continue down that path. So again, came back to the question of, I want to make the videos that I wish I had. So what is that video now? And that was when it was a turning point of like, okay, you know, I feel like I have a lot of these discussions with a ton of my creative friends, musicians or otherwise, people who run podcasts or my video producer friends or so on. Why not just make videos about it? Because it is super uncomfortable stuff that not a lot of people talk about. And I think yeah. it's also a really hard video to make because a lot of the other YouTube people, especially tend to be YouTubers who happen to make music and not a lot of them have had a professional career in the music industry. So it's hard to, I think, frame topics like that from a standpoint of like, as someone who has done this stuff and experienced this stuff for real, here's what I've taken away from it. You know, otherwise it just, it just feels weird to talk about something that like you haven't lived. It's backwards. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot so of backwards it, there. I thought it would be cool just to make those types of videos of like, as someone who works professionally as a full-time creator, what are the things we deal with and why? But more interestingly, what is the point? 
and why do we drive ourselves to create things? And those are the topics I'm really actually interested in and would way prefer to talk about over like the new thing. It's a delay pedal <laughs> that delays stuff. You yeah, know, so I, I think it it's fun. It can sync the tempo and it can also not. You know? And then and it like, sounds I think like it's fun and it's important because it, it yeah. opens up a discussion. And that's the thing is like, I don't, I don't want to provide answers because I don't think anyone can. And anyone who says they have an answer is probably just trying to sell you something. Yeah. Having a platform especially where I'm at now, I feel like it's important and I have a duty to people to do honest work like that. And I thought, why not just use this as a vehicle, not only to drive my own interests forward of like the things I want to talk about and the videos I want to make the way I want to make them and get away from all the like necessity of sponsorships and bullshit of doing gear videos and plugin videos over and over. But why not do it in a way that just opens up a community and tries to put these things front and center in a way that's interesting you know, I don't want it to be all doom and gloom, but I don't want to just blow smoke up your ass either. I want right. to open up a discussion for people of any experience level, whether you're 65 and retired and you worked in the industry for years or you're a 13-year-old kid like I was trying to figure out how the hell any of this works and what the point is. Right. That sounds yeah. almost a bit like how we approach this podcast, though. Our first big fear was like taking on sponsorship and then having to always be happy-go-lucky about the sponsor. And we wanted to be more open and just talk about the process of recording, the things that we've gone through and such. And it seems to be touching a nerve with people that listen. So that's a good sign. Yeah, there's so much information out there. I think that it, like you mentioned, that, that how many more how-to videos are you going to do? And, and how many more are they going to be this sensationalized thumbnail? And it's always a guy looking shocked. Oh, you won't believe this. <laughs> the, and The oh my God face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God. If I only knew this hack. And it's like, oh, come on. Jody and I thought we could talk a little bit about in the podcast how these are the things that we have learned along the way. And hopefully you could kind of get something from that as well. So I think we're coming from a different Right. And that's, the, that's the thing is it was like, Ultimately, when you do these gear reviews or whatever how-to videos, what value does that truly provide that couldn't be provided a thousand other ways, you know? Yeah. And I think that's that's the interesting thing of, like, the types of videos I'm exploring now over the last, like, year or so that I've really been pushing these types of videos about these topics. And that's, like, all the stuff I have filming now, like, in production is all about this sort of stuff because it really resonates with people, but I think it provides more value than like, do you really need someone else teaching you to make a kick drum? Do we really <laughs> need another 20 minute deep dive on the secrets of the next 1176 emulation? Like I just, God, I've seen that video so many times. I filmed that video so many times and I'm just done with it. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on a reason as the Burnout. time of, of recording this podcast, you did uh, video on uh, AI. <laughs> that made a lot of people really angry. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I watched that, I thought it was great. I mean, it, I remember I was at a um, production music convention at one point, and it was a company that I don't remember the name, but I wouldn't mention them anyway. I know who but it is. There was a speaker for the company, and they were really, really pushing this sort of AI created music for production. For whatever reason, there seemed to 
have completely forgot that they're talking to a room full of composers that write <laughs> production music. But I remember him saying like, well, just because you don't play an instrument or you're a musician doesn't mean that you can't create music. Yes, right. that's exactly what it fucking <laughs> means. Exactly that you can't do that, right? Now, a few years down the line, I understand and the, the points that you brought up, right, with the, the sort of effectiveness and the cost ratio and time. So there is those sort of realities that we have to be aware of. When it comes to that, we just have to kind of up our game and there's the human element to it that mm -hmm. we have to sort of foster, I guess, when it comes to that. So. Yeah, it, it's an interesting discussion because I think, and especially some of the comments I've gotten, specifically the really, really angry ones, <laughs> it seems pretty obvious that it's typically from people who don't understand AI on like a fundamental level, like what it is and how it works. Yeah. But also the relationship of AI to the idea of an algorithm and the relationship of music being I don't know, math. Right. <laughs> like, well, yeah. This is the shit computers are made for, man. Exactly. So you can't tell me that a computer isn't going to make great music because it's all the comments that were angry and stuff or even the, the like, you know, Twitter DMs I got were just like, it's never going to have soul, man. And it's like, define <laughs> that for me. Yeah. It's like when you say something sounds warm or you like the vibe. That's just a shitty way of like offsetting ownership and responsibility of the idea. So like, you know, I'm not afraid of it. I think it's something that is going to take over a lot of industries. It's something that already takes, like I said in that video, it's taken jobs away from me already, but I don't care. There's other jobs to explore and jobs right. related to the thing taking away my job to begin with. It's like automotive manufacturing. You know, yeah. people used to work in factories, then robots made the cars. So now the people repair the robots. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah we, we've seen this a thousand times right. before. And if we take a step back as well in our production, we're we're already using it, even if we're not using it in the way that we think of AI. Let's say that you're using both Jody and I were logic users. So mm -hmm. let's say that you use Logic Drummer. Okay. And it's like follow this track, whatever. Well, guess what that is? It's just algorithms, you know, analyzing the track that's already there to kind of spit out some kind of drum groove that's appropriate right. for that. Or and like, that's the thing is people post these angry comments from their smartphone, which is literally driven right. by a bunch of AI. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, tune track, easy drummer, already using it, all the isotope stuff when it comes to analyzing. And it's, and it's and part of the process. And I think yeah. that's the future of where this stuff goes is like having access to some of the tools that aren't out yet, like being a beta tester or just kind of a consultant on some of the music AI things that are on the way, it's a fascinating world. And it's something I really look forward to because like I could see myself when I'm writing like library music or something, right? Something like Isotope's AI mastering stuff saves me so much time. Like oh, yeah. why would I not use that? I would be stupid to not use that if I want to turn things around quicker. And same thing. I need a chord progression. Okay, I wrote this, this, this. What chord comes next? If I had something that answered that question reliably in a way that makes sense for my own style that I could train, mm -hmm. that's incredible. Of course. Yeah. I could be like, I really want to make music today, but I have no idea what to write. I could feed it my catalog and the computer could potentially spit out some ideas. Here's something that sounds like what you already make, so do something new with it. And I could see myself... When I was a kid, right, I played guitar in this little farm town and there was no one to play with. So I could see someone like that or, you know, maybe a kid who's like a lyricist and, you know, writes like really great melodies and stuff but just doesn't know how to play an instrument. 
Wouldn't that be cool to live in a world where that kid could open up a laptop and say, hey, computer, I wrote a pop song in the key of G minor that sounds like Katy Perry and Pharrell, and it's about this fast, and here's the chorus. And then the computer goes, okay, bro, boop, boop, boop. Here's a drum loop. Here's a bass line. Here's a synth melody thing. And by the way, here's, the, here's how it should be mixed, probably. Like, that's such a cool idea, and it's not taking the humanity away from art, because it's just like generative music. You put together an algorithm or a set of rules or an AI that you've trained to some degree, it gives you an idea, and it's your job to interpret the result. Right, and determine yeah, whether or not it's that, good enough to use. Exactly, yeah. and it could be a launching off point, right? Same thing if it's just spinning under drum groove. Well, And that's like generative stuff, right? You, yeah, you put yeah. something out and it comes up with a bunch of garbage, but there's like one bar of it that's really cool and you're like, oh, sick. So you sample that and you make a track. Right. Like, Here's I, the thing I, I'm I looking forward to, and I've just recently heard that there's another vocalist out there that's done it, is to AI my own voice mm -hmm. so that I could then go and make my voice do shit that I can't technically do as a human. Oh, yeah. I'm sure stuff like that is going to be implemented in plugins in the future, like auto-tune that can, like, resynthesize a voice in real time to, like, you know, generate a harmony where you're, like, you well, know, say you're i just, like, be able to sing beyond my ability. Well, yeah, just, like, to <laughs> sing higher or sing lower, but in a way that doesn't sound like auto-tune or you could, say, be a male vocalist or a female vocalist or whatever, and you're, like, I, I need, like, a male harmony here. Yep. And you could sing it and it would, you know, give you five voice player. models to... Like And that's just such a, a cool idea. And ultimately, AI is going to take a lot of the work, but it's also something that enables so many new avenues of creating to begin with. So don't you think that's just a beneficial idea in the end anyway? So let's right. hear an and argument. Like, here. I don't know about you guys, but no. I, would, I would rather not sit around writing stupid chiptune stock music all day. It's boring. <laughs> I don't right. like doing it. Yeah. It pays bills, but it's annoying. Un so like, if I could not have to do that and I could focus on trying to do something new, even if it doesn't make money, like I, I just, as an artist, I feel like that's more fulfilling. It's the creative yeah. aspect of it. The thing that is interesting about what you're talking about here is the argument that always comes back to me, especially from maybe <clears throat> older people. The Beatles would have never done that. Well, oh, yeah. the Beatles pushed the envelope of technology pretty fucking hard. So I'm pretty sure that had they had auto-tune or the ability to do AI, they would have taken it. Well, it's like the, the question I raised in the video. Like if you're an independent filmmaker, student or like first timer or whatever, you've got a budget of let's say 50 grand, which is like pretty common for an indie production. Why would you pay like within reason, why would you pay a composer five to $6,000 to score that versus like a subscription of $10 a month for an AI that could spit out 500 songs and you choose five of them that work for your film? Yeah. And it's exactly like the Beatles, Hendrix, all the real music, man, any normal person would take advantage of the tools available to them. Of course. You don't hammer a nail with a fish. <laughs> right. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but people That's said the, the same thing about, I think I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people said the same thing when MIDI started really happening as well. You know, what, when, it's all the same discussion, though, isn't it? it like it when, is. when, yes, the exactly. phonograph, when the phonograph was invented, like the phonograph yeah. comes out and people are like, that's not real music. It's performed by an orchestra. And then, right. you know, the, the days of eight tracks and Betamax and whatever, and then CDs come out. And they're like, that's, that's not real. Real music's on vinyl and on cassette, man. And then now it's like, if music isn't it like 
96k 32-bit float like it's just not even worth listening to it's it's all coming back to the same thing and we we all you know and that's the same argument musicians love to have like country music isn't real music hip-hop is or hip-hop's just a bunch of overproduced studio bullshit you know real music's made in the heart man and again it's all just like these generic blanket terms that mean nothing yeah yeah absolutely i think On that note, with vinyl, I have a hypothesis that people that really sort of fetishize vinyl and the sound of vinyl were probably people that never had a vinyl player in their life when they're growing (laughs) up because it sounded like fucking shit. It's like it sounds like you're frying bacon in the background after a couple of plays. So anyway, I'll get off my pedestal right now. But that's the whole (laughs) music industry, isn't it, right? You know, we have these synthesizers come out that are reissues or guitar pedals come out or like the Gibson reissue of the ZZ Top, Pearly Gates, Billy Gibbons guitar right. and whatever. And it's it's selling you the idea of the thing you didn't have. Right. Yep. And I think, yeah, vinyl and cassettes and a lot of that comes back to it. It was either something you you wished you had or something you remember having. You know, it's just, it's cashing in on nostalgia. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the insecurities, again, as we have as musicians, right? When it's like, well, oh, yeah. th- this is the answer to your fix. Right? But it was also the, only ha- the idea of the... EQ curve that people were used to that digital didn't have initially. Right. Yeah. Because digital was literally a mirror reflection of everything you gave it is exactly what you gave it. And if you didn't give it something warm or something thick or something thin or however you wanted it to come out with all these esoteric terms of the music in the description, you couldn't make digital do it otherwise is essentially what it is. And so now they're getting it to the point where, oh, we've got this emulation of this old piece of gear. It will give you that feeling of what that piece of gear used to do automatically because that's just what it did. And I think that's why we have so many plugins now that are like, do you miss the sound of recording on your shitty Radio Shack cassette (laughs) player? Well, hey, man, for $19.99, we have a plugin for you. Or like, yeah, do you remember that really crappy mic preamp that you had at your grandma's house? (laughs) Boy, oh boy. Right. Yeah, like what if you could have that again? And you know, that's like half the stuff I have. Like even the the Archeria Polybrute. Right. It's, it's, I mean, it's like a piece of furniture. It's an amazing instrument. It's however expensive it is, $2,500 or something like that or whatever it is now. But it's like an analog synth that falls out of tune. It has a triangle, a square wave, and a saw wave and two filters. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Why would you want that on paper? That's stupid compared to like phase plant or falcon or serum or... You know, even the stuff built into, yeah, like Logic or Ableton, like the synths and effects in those are so much better. But now it's like, I'm bored of these. I really want to make things sound like garbage. I wish <laughs> things were more imperfect, which <laughs> is so funny. Yeah, because it's like people love vinyl and cassette now. Nothing rivals digital music. It is the perfect representation of the thing. Right. Synth I think when, when it comes to, let's say, synths, soft synths versus hardware, the only thing I would say as far as like I think people miss or I think people like when it comes to hardware is sort of like the tactile functionality they have. Uh, unless, of course, it, you have it set up with a controller that you have the same functionality in, in your DAW, right? But the idea of sort of putting your hands on something and turning the filter cut off, simple as that is, right? It's still different than playing it and mousing around on your keyboard. Yeah, which is why I hate making YouTube videos about hardware anymore. 
because it was all the questions I get are just, why would I want this, man? You know, plugins are so much better. And it's like, you cannot translate the difference in workflow and just the level of inspiration on a YouTube video. Right. And it's funny because we, we live in an era now where like, my YouTube audience is pretty broad. There are a lot of older folks, a lot of younger folks, and a lot of people kind of around my age group. And it's funny to think that the majority of people in my age group or younger don't play instruments. Like they might have a MIDI controller, but even some of them have never used a MIDI controller. Like they just drag and drop MIDI loops or they click in things with their mouse and have never played an actual instrument. So it's like, how do you explain to that person the benefit of having like a physical thing to touch? Like it just doesn't right. well, the translate. Disconnect it's so is, interesting. The disconnect there is that they are becoming arrangers yeah. rather than musicians. There's a different aspect to that. I remember walking around Nam one year. Some guy knew who I was, comes up, says, dude, I'm going to be represented by your agent. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> so I go and look him up and everything that I heard that he somehow got signed to my agent with was Apple loops arranged oh, yeah. to be these productions. And I'm thinking, this guy doesn't write fuck all. <laughs> He's an arranger of... But it's interesting stuff. because some of them are so good at it now. Some like of them just are, the, the yeah. Like the efficiency and the way like people build tracks when they're in that sort of mindset of things is crazy. But then it's just, yeah, it, it's funny because then you get into debates with them about that kind of stuff sometimes and they raise points like, well, why would you play an instrument when you could just do this? And you're just like, well, okay, actually that is a really good point. <laughs> it is a good point, but yeah. I, the hard distinction is like how these things become blurred. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, like what is the actual terminology of a producer? Because in the era when there were arrangers, that was literally your job was to arrange the instrumentation. That's a very different definition of what it is now. Same thing with a producer or somebody else. So th the lines are blurring in such a way that it becomes almost hard to understand where somebody's coming from unless you have a deep discussion about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. There's so many angles to it anymore. And like what a musician was no longer exists. And same thing with like the producer. The producer was the overseer. Mm -hmm. right. They weren't the one at the console. You know, that was the mix engineer. Right. <laughs> I think it's all just become this like umbrella thing of like a producer or a whatever is just someone who makes music in some capacity. Like producer is just very literal now in that I produce music. Product, do something. Yeah. yeah. Like, right. I and I think that's the thing is like we've entered this weird paradigm change of the modern musician. I feel like I get that all the time on my videos. It's like, no wonder you make a YouTube channel because you can't make a living at music. You suck <laughs> and your mustache is dumb. <laughs> but it's like, that must be why we're doing a podcast. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, you know, whatever. Sure. Those who can't do teach. Oh, sick burn. Oh, no. Yeah. I've you know, heard that one before. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, God, John Corn 49 doesn't like my music. My career's over. Ah. Uh, but like, <laughs> It's interesting because all the musicians I know now, e even those who are just like the most traditional level of musicians, they are content creators. Yeah. You know, they play shows, but like they also post little clips of covers on their Instagram or they run a marketing business on the side or they do consulting on product development or stuff like that. And a lot of them also run like YouTube channels and stuff. I mean, even like successful 
people in other fields, actors and whatever, have YouTube channels now and things like that. And I feel like we've entered this new era of what it means to be an independent creator of any capacity. The people I know that run bakeries post on TikTok. Right. The idea that you're going to make a full-time living solely at writing original music is insane. Yeah. I don't know anyone who does that anymore. It's getting yeah. harder. No, I, yeah, I think it's just, again, with, with the growth of the industry or changing, as it were, is that we end up wearing all of these different hats. And I think it's just that you just have to. And if you want to well, do just, something. Yeah, to make ends meet, but even yeah. just to to exist in this industry, it's so dynamic. And it's it's always why it's funny when I get those types of comments or like hate mail because it's like, okay, so it's obvious that this person is like probably not written a song in the last three months and has never done an actual professional gig a day in their life. Right. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I, I can't name anyone I know that just exists off their music catalog. Yeah. Outside no. of like guys I know who did it, you know, 30 years ago when that right. was a possibility. Now it's like everyone I know that is currently actively working does like 700 things. Yeah. I read actually this morning there was a little news blurb about the band Fear Factory. Mm. And they're going out on tour. And they're forced to ride in a van now because of the, the economics of it and the way that venues now are charging touring bands to sell merch yeah it's great and that was that kind of started happening right when i was getting out of that stuff where you started seeing yeah. like charges and things like that and it was just like why would we even play yeah you know and, uh, that, and that's, that's where you know a lot of these bands that's the only way that they made money it was mm -hmm. like the merch now you want to cut it out too Devin Townsend so, uh, just recently came out with an article about all that as well, saying yeah. it's just not economically feasible for the average independent band to do any kind of touring. No, that's what, it, that's what it, it it's sad. Seventeen thousand to go see Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because, like, when I went to that music college, of course, all of us wanted to go out and be rock stars and whatever, sure. which is like stupid, but. The people I know from that school and then from the time I was a touring musician, you know, either in my own bands or bands I was like a hired gun in or whatever. And this wasn't even that long ago. This was like 10 years ago. Those were people 19, 20, 21, that age, going out, doing this stuff, making no money. And they kept doing it. And like, I do not envy those people now that no. still tour in bands because they're just as broke as they were when they were 17. But now they've got a kid or whatever and now it's just even harder to tour to begin with like all of their venues they used to play at shut down after the pandemic and their booking agency went under because no one was playing shows for like two years so yeah. now a lot of them are just like dude i don't know what to do and that's really sad because like they were some extremely talented people but i think that's why we faced this new era of that paradigm shift of what the modern musician is so here's a question for you in thinking about this. How many people out of going to your music school and to the degree of the professional level of people that you met while touring are still actually music as their income? Oh God, yeah. Uh, what percentage? None. I mean, I, I could probably name them all on like one hand if I, yeah, if I really think about it, I guess. I could probably name about seven people that actually still do this stuff in like any professional capacity out of like, I don't even know how many kids went to that college mm -hmm. that were in my class. I mean, probably a, maybe a couple hundred, I think was the class size or so. It was a very small school, but 
Yeah, even the people I know back from when I was doing touring and stuff, you know, a lot of them just got jobs because yeah. they had a kid or they they were tired of being broke all the time or they just made more money doing something else. You know, I know a lot of people who went from being in a band to running a studio or went from being in a band to working at a music retailer or working for a guitar company or started a pedal company or started a van rental business specifically targeted at touring musicians, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because then, you know, same thing. It's like, yeah, you had to give up on the dream because you suck and your music's dumb. And it's like, <laughs> no, they, they just wanted to eat. Yeah, they yeah. wanted to cover their heads with a roof. To Which, yeah, like if I, if I had to exist in just solely music or whatever, I couldn't do it. Not the way I'd want to live. If I went back to that, could I make a living off music? Sure. Would it be a living I want to make? Not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like having a savings account and not worrying about like groceries that week or right. <laughs> things like that. And it's just, it's something out of necessity. But yeah, it's really hard because the chances of even reaching that like middle class level of success are just astronomical. There's only one job to be Taylor Swift. And it ain't yours. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So mentioning that right there where you said middle class is an interesting comment that was thrown my way at one point because I do technically make my living 100% from music. It's not always great, and it's had its ups and downs. But somebody that ran a rather large songwriters group told me that because I was living off of music 100%, I was in the upper 1%, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, absolutely. what the fuck? Because I am nowhere near, like, a, as the example given, Taylor Swift or some other large band that everybody thinks about. And it's just mind-boggling to me because I've never been super comfortable yet, and it's frustrating as fuck, even though it's 100% my job, so to speak. And I right, would like and that's to be like, in that you know, position. sound design and stuff. Yeah, I get, like... I could just stop doing everything right now and live off royalties for, I don't know, at least the foreseeable future. And it is funny because then it's just like, it makes you think about like, even though the chances are so astronomical to even achieve just the ability to live a normal life off stuff, it's so bizarre to think that like, man, there are so many people out there that do that, Mm -hmm. that you've never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing as well, because I think people, when they Let's say they go into music with a mindset that they want to be sort of air quote famous here. Right. <laughs> in order to make it. They neglect to think about just because you're not at the upper echelon of famous artists, whatever, doesn't mean that you can't have a career in it. You know, you just have to diversify a little bit and you have to sort of swallow the pill or at least accept it. Like most people are not going to know who you are. I wonder how many people realize that, that you... You can actually make it. It's not going to be easy by any stretch, but you might be on the sidelines a little bit. And, and that's the thing I think people don't get is it's just, it's not about being the super big household Grammy winner or whatever. It's like, if there's any secret to success in a creative industry of any kind, it's just that you want to have the determination to want it 10% more for 5% longer than the other person. And that's what makes a career in this field. Yeah, yeah, they drop it's, off like flies pretty quick. That's why I was stubborn. asking the percentage of how many you yeah. knew. Yeah, and that that's the thing. Like, I knew a ton of people at first, and then as the years goes on, just they drop I off. quit, I left, yeah. I moved off, you know, I quit the band, the band broke up, whatever. And, yeah, all the people I know that make, like, a decent <clears throat> living in the music industry do kind of, like, other jobs. None of them are people you would know. Right, yeah. 
While we've bummed people out here with our reality <laughs> views here, maybe steer it back a little bit onto the gear thing. First of all, our favorite soft synth and favorite hardware synth. Probably like pragmatically speaking, Phase Plant is like just one of the most powerful pieces of software I own. That's like the first thing I reach for in a sound design session because it does like everything except sampling. So if I need like sampley stuff, I just use Falcon, which is equally stupid powerful. Hardware-wise, the Waldorf Iridium is extremely hard to beat just because it is like an everything box. But I guess when it comes to like making music and stuff, I really like Synapse Dune 3. I don't know what it is about the sound of that plugin. Just it's one of the best sounding synth plugins I've ever used. Probably either, weirdly enough, the, the 303 I got, I really love that just because it's so immediate, or something like the Polybrute or even the PWM Malevolent, something that has an interesting sound to it. Yeah. But it, I think the, the biggest inspiration for me is always just like noise and stuff. And then you just taking a run with it and just yeah, yeah, yeah. see how we can mess with this. And come <clears> up it's always about just making like a vibe. I, and, you know, I always throw in like recordings of rain or like time stretch some vinyl crackle or take a drum loop and like just wash it out with reverb and pitch that down three octaves and just make like an atmosphere. Right. And then I just I reach for the thing that I know is going to work with that. So if it's like a lush clean thing, I might reach for the polybrute to add some warmth to it. Or if it's this very textured, alive thing, I might get something like the iridium for like the glassy upper harmonics that aren't there. But it's, yeah, it's all about just like whatever's going to provide the right texture to me, whatever's going to provide the right complement to the thing I'm trying to curate is, right. you know, Earlier you mentioned five things. Are these included in those five things or are there five other things? Yeah, I guess on my regular cast of stuff, the iridium... The Polybrute, for sure. The Roland TR-8S, I just got that recently. It's a drum machine. I was I was really sorely lacking like a drum box. So I had to just get like a physical one because I love just turning on a few things and just jamming. So those three are like probably the first things I reach for. The Malevolent or the 303, those are both on my desk. That kind of depends. Like, do I want something a bit more gritty and textured or do I want like that 303 acid thing or like a big deep bass line? So those are definitely up there. And then, yeah, like Pedals, the Microcosm, the Empress Reverb, the Empress Euroburo, the Novation Peak. I reach for that quite a bit, too. All right. And, so there's a fair you know, bunch of gear in, in Cameron's studio. That yeah, I've got a ton of stuff. Yeah. But it's usually yeah. like the stuff that's on my desk is the stuff I – that's the right. first thing yeah. I know I'm going to reach for. So I have the Iridium, TR-8S, PWM Malevolent, 303, and then the Polybrute right over here. Because cool. those are always going to be the first things where it's like whatever I am doing – one of these things is going to be the next thing I need. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, I know this would probably change with each situation, but <clears throat> let's say that you're working on your own music. Mm -hmm. What generally comes first for you? Is it, do you have like a melodic theme in mind or do you start with the texture that you mentioned there? To my ear, at least, like your music is very textured and rich and it has that sort of emotion that you're going for okay. so yeah well no i mean i i might sound like a fanboy here and i i apologize if i do but i genuinely enjoy what you do do you tend to start with that kind of emotional aspect and then build off of it or is it melodic elements or a groove element or something that, that triggers ideas for you yeah it's always a feeling and I'm a very visual person. What's what's that? Uh, synesthesia or whatever, synesthesia, right? Where you, yeah. like, you see things. And that's always been music to me is like when I listen to whatever, there's just like a, that landscape you go to in your head. And I'm very much the same way when writing where like I have 
I don't know, it's not really like a very clear image a lot of the time, but there's just sort of this mood that I'm aiming for where it's kind of like a distant landscape or like a foggy street at night or something, or it's just a feeling of like, what's a word that sums up what I'm going for here? What is the the theme? And then it's just a matter of trying to, from that image in your head, just pull, what does that sound like? Anymore, especially, I'm not very much on the melodic side. I use melody and stuff sometimes, but I've, I've really tried to push further into the experimental vein of stuff. Because... Mm. Does this know, require a big dictionary so you can just randomly pick a word? <laughs> yeah, I've got a, I've got a lot of books. I've got a lot of stuff. One of my favorites I bought recently is uh, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Never that. Never heard it was a of blog. it, but it sounds interesting. Uh, it was a blog oh, that a blog. Uh, came around years and years and years ago, and finally the person who was behind the blog put it into a book. So I immediately pre-ordered the book because mm. it came out around my birthday last year. So I was like, I have to have the book. I'll just look one up as an example. This is the stuff that goes through my head is like <laughs> one of the words is all schmertz. I don't know how to say it. It's like a made like and they're all made up words. Oh, they're made it's, up. Okay. Yeah. So it's this person just invents these words. So this is alt schmertz. It's the wariness with the same old issues you've always had, the same boring flaws and anxieties <laughs> that have been gnawing on you for years, which leaves them soggy and tasteless and inert, with nothing interesting left to think about, nothing left to do but spit them out and wander off to the backyard ready to dig up some fresher pain you might have buried long ago. It's <laughs> exactly what I got from that word, yeah. <laughs> so uh, another one was Mori, which is, uh, so many people have titled songs after this because it was really popular. It's a desire to capture a fleeting experience. And it says, with every click of the shutter you're trying to press pause on life if only you could feel a little more comfortable moving on living in a world that's stuck on play that sounds like the, the instagram problem of america <laughs> yeah so it's just it's things like that that really stick out to me so you know i read a lot of books on like philosophy or psychology or things like that and you know sometimes you just have experiences right you know i, I remember after my uncle died a couple years ago funerals are always really sad obviously and I just remember like walking back to my car after they lowered the casket and whatever. And just, there was this weird asynchronous shuffle everyone was doing. And it just kind of gave me this feeling in my head of like, you know, spirits walking up a mountain after they die. You know, it's just kind of this shuffling movement. So there was, I think it's Sheol, which is a Judaism version of like the afterlife, the march to wherever you're going. So what does that sound like? Is it like a shuffling organic pattern? Is it just a texture of gravel? What does that sound like? It's these ghosts or spirits or whatever. And is that like a synth that's drifting in the background? Is it a voice that's sort of inhuman now and things like that? So yeah, it's always stuff like that clicking in the back of my mind. So I always have like my phone or even my notebook where I just write out song titles or little snippets of an idea and just try and keep that in mind of like, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? And what does that translate into sound like? You know? Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's not so, A minor, F, C, and G then. <laughs> no. It, it used to be when I did stuff that was a bit more straightforward. And especially when I was like working more on like the future garage side of things, just because it was fun to make and whatever, it, there was a lot more thought about melody and chord progression and things like that. And you know, with cinematic music, there are some considerations of like, what sort of voicing am I going to do here? Just to make the progression work, you know, with like voice leading. Right. But anymore, it's a question of the same thing of like, how do I voice this chord? But more now, it's a question of what 
does this chord voicing imply as versus this just in ways that like the harmonics clash or that it adds kind of a rumble or something or what's a way I could voice this one so that the distortion on it just explodes a bit more here. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I would hope that most music is emotionally driven, but this is definitely more than the melodic top of it or we're going up to the third here whatever but but it's it's driven by the emotion of the underlying. yeah so yeah. it's it's been a progressive spiral downward into just trying to get to that base level just i want it to be pure feeling and pure mood because that's what i love about so many film scores and game soundtracks because a lot of those and especially in recent years it's so much less straightforward mm. you know when you watch like Stranger Things or something, right? That That's a very melodic score, but there's a lot of weird ambient segments that are really, really different. And same with like Doom. You know, the Doom soundtrack was just this ultra heavy, brutal, electronic, genty thing. But some of the more ambient sections of Doom are just these weird, almost like sound collages. And I've always been interested in that stuff because when I was like getting more into like the DAW and things like that, I remember finding artists like sleepy time gorilla museum or even tom waits or stuff like that to some extent where they really pushed into like the boundaries of what i would consider music and then i got into like the really experimental stuff with like you know noise or just like lowercase music yeah. where it was like this is this music and like what does that make me feel that now i'm questioning the like <laughs> authenticity of this as a body of work and right you know so it's it, like I said, it's just been this progressive spiral into like i want to push that vein of things as much as I can in a way that's still like, I I think, at least I hope, a lot of the music I do sounds like me. Like you could tell it's me doing it, but I want to just push further into what that means in a way that is more interesting right. than yeah, stuff yeah. that's going to get put on a well, Spotify playlist. Well, Here's, for my money, it's like, keep doing what you're doing because I, I really enjoy it. But Jody, I'm sorry. I, I have a question for you. How often <clears throat> do you actually watch things from like movies from the 20s and the 30s or even the 40s? A little bit here and there, it's not really something like I can pull up on the TV when my wife is down there with me or something. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, yeah, I do pull up just like experimental short films or like weird forgotten media and things like that just to, I don't know, to learn more about just like the aesthetics of something. What was considered experimental then and why? Sure. And what does this mean? And, you know, even like modern short films and stuff, I watch a ton of weird indie horror things or whatever. Yeah, pushing into that idea of like modern sound collage albums or weird art house things where a guy milking a pig crying for an hour. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's interesting because just it's so fun to challenge yourself to try and appreciate something like that. So, sure. Well, the reason yeah, why I, I bring it up is yesterday I was listening to a film in the background as I was eating some lunch. And the thing that popped into my mind from the soundtrack of that film was the game Galaga, if you remember that game. <laughs> yeah, Because yeah. the aliens dropping down on the screen had a descending pattern to the music. And this film that must have been from like the 1940s, exact same movement, same pitch. And I'm thinking, did the Galaga music soundtrack person steal this from this movie because <laughs> it's highly possible but i don't know 
Yeah, and I, I think there is just that weird world of like untapped ideas that could be repurposed. Sure, you know, and I and I think that's why I am so interested in weird things like that, and especially like the AI art scene, like the weird stuff people make with Mid Journey is just so fascinating. Like both being a very visual and analytical person as a creative medium, what does this imply of like not only art that's no longer made by people, but art that exists based off data? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's just those those kind of like more theoretical things are usually what get my gears ticking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking about gears ticking, I'm going to pull us back again into the other technical side of things here. You're big on, or at least you have been uh, on your channel here on advice and, and teaching people technology and technique, whether that's just pure synthesis or sound design or what have you. If somebody is just getting into synthesis, they just, I, I'm going to buy my first synth, my soft synth, whatever. What's What would you advise them to get into? I'm thinking as overarching type of thing. I'm not thinking sort of like niche type of thing. I think, you know, the more basic like subtractive synths are a good way to just to get your foot in the door and like understand synthesis as like a tool. But right. regardless of what you get, I think the best way to learn stuff is a lot of like how I learned was I would take whatever synth I had, you know, Serum, FM8, Vital, whatnot, and open up a preset and then open another copy of that synth just on the initial settings. And just step by step, okay, this setting is here. So I'll change it on that and play it on the clean version. Okay, what did that do to the sound? Why? And if I change the value, what happens? So you kind of learn just to build yep. these patches and what each control is going to do. And if you do that with enough different synths, like a subtractive synth, an FM synth, a wavetable synth, an additive synth, you know, whatever, like there aren't that many forms of synthesis. So once you understand the components of whatever type of synthesis it is, it's really easy to translate to anything else. And I think that was the thing that helped me a ton was just really learning the fundamental aspects of like, how does this type of synth produce sound? And what is like the range of sounds it can produce. Because then if you pick one subtractive synth, software, hardware, whatever, like, you know, a a Moog, mini Moog. Right. And compare that to the Polybrute and compare that to a modular. It's all the same stuff. Envelopes, amplifiers, filters, and different waveforms. You know, a sequencer is a sequencer. So once you learn FM and how to make a sound with FM any other FM synth is arguably going to do it the same way. Right. So I think that's the best way to do it. Read the manual, obviously. I don't know why people seem to be so mystified by that fucking concept, but, (laughs) you know, like, the manual is there for a reason. It literally teaches you how to do stuff. So if you read the manual and just do that, open a preset, open an initialized patch, and just try to recreate it, and then try playing with it. You know, now that you've recreated it, if you tweak some of these things, what happens? Okay, like now it sounds brighter or now it sounds more like a pad or if I tune it down, now it's like a bass thing. Right. And you do that enough times and eventually it just becomes hard to make really bad sounds. <laughs> right. I'm fully with you there because it's all about just getting into the gear and really knowing what your gear is doing. And then, like you said, it translates to like if let's say as a guitar player, right? Yeah, if you can dial up a boogie rectifier, you're probably not going to have a huge 
issue with the Soldano. You know what I mean? So you get used to similar types of gear and what, what it actually does. And I think that's the weird kind of double side of where we're at now is like through YouTube and stuff like that. There's this fetishization of like the idea of knowing like super advanced ideas and mm -hmm. that it's beneficial to have this like ultra deep understanding of things. And it's really not. Music isn't fucking rocket science. It's just noises in order. So yeah. you don't need to understand every single aspect of how image lines harmer works to make music. It can right. be beneficial to understand the inner workings of something, but as long as you give yourself a decent grasp on the fundamental aspects of the thing you're trying to accomplish, that's the most useful way to attack it. There's no need to be a completionist on things. It's just figure out the how and why and then fill in the blanks on your own later. There you go. Well, there speaking go. of that, <laughs> what is your favorite piece of gear that you can't live without? A good reverb. <laughs> <laughs> is there one that is like your desert aisle? Mm, I don't know. Like, it's funny, like being into the more experimental side, I think of reverb like as an instrument. So it kind of depends. You know, every reverb algorithm is different. And algorithmic reverb versus convolution reverb is very different too. But yeah, I, I think I really enjoy probably the Eventide Ultra Reverb. I use that one a ton. And then yeah, like the Hologram Microcosm is great because it has like the granular stuff that it does, which is really fun. And the Empress Reverb is probably my favorite reverb pedal I've ever used just because it has so many different algorithms and they all sound amazing. But the best thing for me is audio. Any type of audio, I just love the idea of messing with it. So I think the best instrument for me is just the DAW. You know, what oh, can I do? Enough. Yeah. You know, what can, can I do with, with this? It, right? Yeah. So it's like yeah. I could record my dryer downstairs and make like huge impacts or I could time stretch some <laughs> wind chimes and get this like weird bell thing. You know, I don't even, you don't even need effects and stuff. You can just do so much by like messing with audio. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of the fun is. And that's where the more interesting stuff is. Because a guitar sounds a lot like a guitar. A synth sounds a lot like a synth. A vocal sounds a lot like a vocal. But the DAW as part of the creative process and as like a facilitator to other ideas, I think is the the most fun. Well, apparently modern cars are going to sound like washers and dryers, at least if we're to believe Minority Report, because that's the sound that they used for their modern cars. <laughs> in that movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Question number two here of the final three here. What's the biggest lesson that you have learned? Hmm. You're not special and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. That's yeah. really good. The sooner you can just accept your own creative path and whatever you're doing and your own inclinations, the like more fulfilled you're going to be in your creative work. Yeah. I don't think that there's any like secret lesson or like agenda with things. It's just once you accept the idea that you're not special and nothing you do matters, all the doors are open after that. You know, <laughs> yeah. if something, I, that, if something sucks, it doesn't mean anything. If something's great, then awesome. It's on to the next project. Yeah. All right. You know, I Fair think, enough. yeah, just branching off that is just it. Momentum is the most valuable thing you can build. All right. And cool. speaking of such, what is the advice that you would universally give others? <laughs> I think one of my favorite pieces of advice, I'm actually planning a video on this at some point. When I was at that music college, uh, right before I dropped out, I just had this really frustrated conversation with this teacher where I never took his class, but we just seemed to click. I don't know. 
why exactly. He just seemed to kind of get where I was coming from. And I remember asking him like, you know, man, I'm not learning anything here. I, I don't get it. And looking at the statistics and just knowing how high achieving many of the teachers at the school are, and I'm probably never going to reach that. Like, what's the point? I thought I was going to be the next Stevie Ray Vaughan or whatever. And what do I do? Why do I even bother? And he looked at me and said, the only thing you have to do is die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you have to do that. Well, I mean, I guess you do, yeah. And that was the thing. Is like, it, it's such an interesting and multi-layered statement yeah. that I think just, it answers so many of the questions we have as creators. You know, it's not about like, you can do it, da-da-da-da-da. Statistically, you won't and you can't. And, <laughs> you know, again, like, you're not special. You're not that interesting. And most of what you do is never going to matter in the grand scheme of things. But when you embrace that, like, you know, sort of upside of, I guess, nihilism there, it's interesting. The only thing you have to do is die. So, Again, all options are really open here. If you don't feel like making music, then don't. If you feel like there's something you'd rather be doing, do it. What does it cost you? So yeah. if you're a creator in any capacity, I think that's just the most important idea to embrace is why not? You're going to die anyway, so you might as well do something <laughs> interesting. And if you're wasting your time trying to be the next lo-fi hip-hop producer superstar and it's not doing anything for you, why do it? If it's not making you say, fuck yeah. Exactly. And that's that's on. the thing. There's there's only big decisions, I think, is, yeah. I think that that's the under layer to that statement is there are only big choices. You know, yeah. the only thing you need to do is die. So I if you're going to do... As many IRs as I could and amps exactly. and everything. That, that's the most <laughs> important thing. thing. Like, right, yeah. I, I, I could sit here all day making dubstep or lo-fi hip-hop or whatever that's going to probably work on Spotify or whatnot, or I could sit here making generic-ass sample packs, or I'm going to die anyway. Why not go in a cave and record some reverbs? <laughs> Why not make really experimental music that annoys my dogs just for fun one night? <laughs> Why not, you know, start a fucking YouTube channel? Why not just go make a pot of chili? You know, it's all it's all useless in the end. So like, just <laughs> Except do for the what chili, you think course. is interesting. <laughs> right. And yeah, the, that's the thing. It's like I said, that's the underlayer to that statement is there are only big decisions. There are a ton of decisions to make, but the ones that matter are the big ones because those are going to have the impact that's going to do something and you're going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah, don't sweat the small stuff. In other exactly. Words. Yeah. yeah. Which we're about to do actually with our Friday <laughs> finds right yeah. after we're thanking yeah, Cameron. thank you, Cameron, for, for doing this. Really enjoyed it. Um, we like to end up each episode here with Friday Find, something that we've found during the week. So you're more than welcome to take part in that. But sure. I'm, I'm going to start us off, and I actually picked up something new this week. I took the plunge. I bought the Stephen Slate Audio, the VSX headphone system with the binaural monitoring. So far, I'm still getting used to it. I like it a fair bunch because I am not in a perfect room and I'm going to be interesting to see how it makes my mixes translate. Speaking about sweating the small stuff. So that's my <laughs> that's my uh, Friday find, the Steven Slate uh, VSX. What about you, Jody? This week, I'm going with a hardware box and it is the SSL 12 is what it's called. It's a mid-range box. It's 12 in, 8 out. USB bus powered box. 
The cool thing about this thing is that it does 192 32-bit with the A to D and the D to A, which is pretty crazy when you think about it for USB. Although I don't know if it's USB B or C, and that's that's the difference there, I think. But I'm going with the SSL 12 for all those that need a little bit more than the two and a little bit less than a full console. I might That's have to look into opinion. that. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to find like a 32-bit interface and they, they're very, very rare right now, but I have a 32-bit field recorder. So now every time I go back to 24-bit, I'm just mad. <laughs> <laughs> if there is something to be sweating a small bit right yeah. there, that's it's, that. It's such a dumb thing to complain about. Like, God, I just need another like 8,000 dB of dynamic range and then I'll finally be happy. <laughs> I went into the damn cave and I recorded this and now it's back to 24-bit. Yeah. bullshit. <laughs> but it's great because it's like with that stuff, like gain staging doesn't even matter anymore. It's awesome. Right. You right. got so much headroom there. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Let's see. I guess mine is here's, you're not going to see this on the podcast, but NV. Tape player? Oof. This, oh, not just any tape player. This uh -huh. is a voicemail recorder. This what? is, I paid $5. It's the Radio Shack TCR 200 voice activated telephone cassette recorder. Oh, hell yeah. Yes. About one so, of those in decades. <laughs> I'm working on a video about how has the digital era impacted our relationship with the idea of nostalgia. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And what was funny is I was trying to find a three headed tape deck to do like samples through. So I could play my synth, and because it has three heads, I could loop it back in and not have to record to the tape. I could just get the read off the tape mm -hmm. with, like, a little bit of delay, obviously. But, you know, that would be cool. I bought four of them on eBay. Not one of them worked. Ugh. And then I was watching Amulet's YouTube channel slash musician who does, like, tape loop music. And I saw I was using this. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. So I started walking around, and believe it or not, I found one at the pawn shop, like right down the road from me. For, well, the they guy wanted was probably 10, happy to sell it too. They wanted ten bucks. I told them I'll give you five. <laughs> they took it just like that. <laughs> so that's that's my that's been my super fun Friday find because it actually does let you monitor everything off of it, so you can do that. So that'll be a really fun project. But I think the other thing I found is the Rainbow Six Siege soundtrack. If you haven't listened to it, it's actually really, really good. I've never played the game yet, but it's from Ben Frost and uh, someone else who I don't remember their name offhand because I'm not super familiar with them. But I love Ben Frost's music, and it's a really, really cool soundtrack. Cool. Right so, on. Now prices are going to go up on old uh, answering <laughs> machines, right? No. That's I actually had a couple. I had a couple of my YouTube friends I had a bet with where I was like, once I release this video, how much do you want to bet that a bunch of these are going to crop up on eBay for like fifty dollars a pop? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't have that, it's just everything else just shit. Right. You got to have this one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like the what was the the Tascam Porta Studios? If you guys remember those, oh, right? I oh, had yeah. one, and they're worth a fortune now. Well, there's those of us like myself, I had to borrow one because I had at least a couple hundred tapes of stuff that were still on tapes that I no longer had my Porta 1 for or Porta 2. Did I have Porta 1 or Porta 2? I can't remember which Porta. It was Porta 1 or Porta 2. And I borrowed one from somebody. It was not the same thing. And I had to go in and slowly fix tapes so I could just dump it into the computer and digitize all that stuff. Right. So it's habit because, you know, at some point they're not going to be around anymore. Which is funny because, yeah, like the, I, I see a lot of vintage pedals and stuff like that coming up. And I think it's like YouTube channels like Heinbach or David Hillowitz or stuff where they talk about these old pieces of gear. Suddenly they flood on eBay. But it is interesting that like 
there's something so funny about that of, I guess, the philosophy of like impermanence. Mm, and, yeah. and and I guess it applies to a digital medium to some extent, but just not in the same way where like tape degrades over time. Like there will be a day when you're never going to be able to hear that again. Yeah. Well, I experienced as we're carrying on here before yeah. this podcast, <laughs> I had a job to take a tape from my uncle where he was interviewing might've been my great grandfather. And the tape cassette was done on something similar as to like a radio shack with one of those radio shack mics. Oh, like the little like dictaphone. Yeah. Things. Like a dictaphone, yeah. but with the actual, like the mono cable that came out and plugged into the darn thing. And it's super noisy. And you hear all this noise and the instruction that came back to me, if this tape fails, I'm going to kill you. And of course, I get the one pass through it after borrowing a tape player to digitize this thing. And at the very tail end, it's separated from the clear leader. So it just ran itself into its own box. You know, you'd have to mm. break the cassette open in order to get it back out. And I apologized to him. I said, I've got it digitized, but this tape is done. Right. We're talking a tape that was like done way back in the 50s or something. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's so. that's what I've been having fun with with this thing. I went to Goodwill and just bought a bunch of cassettes that like, you know, oh, someone probably just... had sitting in their car for like 20 years and then gave to Goodwill. <laughs> and it's so funny because I bought some cassettes, uh, which is, that was a weird experience, like to buy like a new pack of cassette tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like, God, I haven't done this in a long time. But buying like the old ones from Radio Shack, because the new ones were too clean. It was really funny. I was like, wow, this wow. actually sounds okay. So I bought these old ones from Goodwill, and it's just like, man, that's so crazy how just like this tape was, this tape was, yeah, dead 10 years ago. And now it just sounds amazing because it sounds like garbage. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But yeah, so we should wrap things up. Yes, wrapping (laughs) it up. Here we go. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so, we'll get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the name Venus Theory, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thank you for being on, Cameron. Thank you. And remember to subscribe and join the mailing list and all that, because if you don't, I know where you live. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, Cameron. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.